Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. Hello listeners, it's your host Ali Jaffe and we've got a very exciting podcast for you today. We haven't got one, not two, but three guest speakers. We first have Jenny Rosborough and then two members from the Bite Back team. Jenny is a registered nutritionist who completed her master's in nutrition at King's College London. She now works as the head of nutrition at Jamie Oliver. She's worked on many public health projects and is the campaign manager at Action on Sugar, which explores the sugar tax in the UK. She's currently focusing on child health and is an integral part of the Bite Back 2030 campaign, helping give young people a voice in the nutritional and political world. She works as a nutrition trainer on the MEND programme, which stands for Mind, Exercise, Nutrition and Do It. It's a non-profit organisation whose mission is to inspire children, families and adults to lead and sustain fitter, healthier and happy lives. Jenny has been a huge support towards Nutritank and we were lucky enough to have her speak at our recent national conference at the Royal Society of Medicine. Founded by chef and campaigner Jamie Oliver, philanthropist Nikolai Tangen and chaired by World Food Prize winner Lawrence Haddad. Bites Back 2030 exists for a healthy generation. Their main aim is for young people to know more about how the food system is designed and how we can redesign it to put young people's health first. At the heart of the organisation is the Bite Back 2030 Youth Board, a team of passionate teenage activists from across the UK who are campaigning for more opportunities to be healthy through changing the current narrative surrounding food. They hope to achieve this by improving the flow of affordable, healthy options for young people and are working extremely hard to build a movement for young people who can get the big players in government and business to prioritise young people's right to health. This has never been more important within the UK, having the worst childhood obesity rates in Western Europe. We have Tasha, who is a Bite Back Youth Board member, who is joining us today. We also have Nikki Whiteman joining us. Nikki began her career as a journalist, spending 15 years at the BBC, where she presented daily live news shows for the radio. In 2014, she joined the charity sector, where she had led communications for a number of high-profile organisations. She was one of the first to join the Bite Back team last year. So let's start off with Jenny Rosborough. It's so great to have you on the show. It's a shame we can't meet in person, but I'm sure when all this madness is over, we'll see each other soon. So could you just start off by simply telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, even though I've given you quite the grand intro, and tell everyone how we first met. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. So, um, as an intro, I'm a registered nutritionist. Um, I guess my background is that I predominantly work within public health and around um, child health. So, um, I've worked initially on writing and delivering and training health professionals to 
deliver a community-based um, program called MEND, which stood for Mind, Exercise, Nutrition, Do It. And that was really about encouraging um, behaviour change within families by um, educating around nutrition and bringing in kind of physical activity sessions and also um, teaching behaviour change skills. Um, and then after that, I went to Action on Sugar, where I was campaign manager, and that was very much about acknowledging that there's only so far, though we really want to empower families, there's only so far we can go um, within our current kind of environment where we, which is pretty much flooded with unhealthy um, foods that aren't really nutritious and these are heavily marketed at us. So what we were trying to do at Action on Sugar then is kind of change the profile of, of the foods on the shelves to make them more nutritious and healthier um, and also get government and food industry to take more responsibility um, to make sure that there's access to healthy, nutritious foods for all. Um, and then off the back of that, I joined the Jamie Oliver group um, in the head of nutrition role. And that role is really broad. But again, we've been doing a lot of the policy work around um, changing the food environment. So within that role, I work um, as part of the advisory group to Bite Back 2030 as well. And when we met... <laughs> So this was a couple of years ago around our, one of our campaigns, Nutrition for Medics, um, under the, um, well, with the understanding that we know that medical students don't get um, the right level of nutrition training, considering that a lot of the health issues now are predominantly caused by food that we eat. Um, so we met when you were filming for our Friday Night Feast programme. Exactly, and what a time that was. Jamie Oliver setting up an alfresco kitchen on the physics field at Bristol Uni. <laughs> Highlight of medical school. And so for our listeners, I know there can be a bit of confusion sometimes with what a registered nutrition actually does versus what a dietitian does. So we had the wonderful Elaine on um, our first pod. Could you just tell us a little bit about what a registered nutritionist actually means and any issues around the title? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, actually. So, um, a, reg- so a, di- a registered dietitian tends to work, um, well, work more clinically so more within kind of the treatment side of health, whereas a registered nutritionist tends to have a more broader role. So this could be within health promotion, um, health prevention, so um, communicating nutrition guidelines, so a lot of around kind of nutrition comms, um, also working across the food industry, um, within the media. So um, a dietitian might work more in a hospital setting, not always, but often. Um, whereas a, a registered nutritionist would work more kind of community, public health, food industry. Um, and the other differentiation there to make is the fact that there are also lots of nutritionists who don't have a registered nutrition title, and that's because it's not a protected term, which is a bit of an issue in our field. So um, you could do a short course and call yourself a nutritionist, but obviously you wouldn't have the same level of knowledge or understanding as if you had a a degree and or a master's um, in nutrition. So that's the main difference, really. And is there any work to help and protect the title so that um, there can be less misinformation dispelled on social media and online? There is by the Association for Nutrition. So um, they hold the UK register uh, for registered nutritionists. And um, they're doing work at the moment with the Privy Council to get a kind of chartered nutrition status so that will definitely help to protect the title somewhat okay that sounds really useful and will definitely protect the general public and what they can read online because i know that's quite an issue sometimes 
And so amazing and beyond exciting for our listeners to hear that you're head of nutrition at Jamie's, I'm sure, with his very large fan base. Could you tell us a bit about what a typical day of work would be like for you? I don't think that is really a typical day. I mean, the typical parts of the day are a really good breakfast and a really good lunch. <laughs> but beyond that, my role is really, really broad. So I oversee a team of nutritionists um, who all have different skill sets and input. We input as a team into the books and um, so the recipes in the books, um, the TV series that we have, our public health campaigns. So that's more aligned to kind of the policy work side of things. Um also, the, our retail products and restaurants, so the food industry side, um, and public health communications across our online platform, social media. So it's really, really broad, um, which is the exciting part of the job as well. Yeah, it does sound like every day there's something different on the table. A bit kind of like medicine. You don't know who's going to walk through the door or what project's going to come your way. Exactly. And I can definitely contest to the fact that the food at Jamie's is amazing and a really great part of the job. I remember having that fresh um, pasta from the really cool pasta machine in yeah. <laughs> in the open kitchen. And yeah, it was just top quality. Loved it. I know. We're definitely looking forward to getting back to work for the lunches. <laughs> I can imagine. And so what do you enjoy the most about your job? I think I enjoy the overall I think working across these different disciplines because often in nutrition you'd work in one particular area and you wouldn't necessarily be in a role where you'd work across food industry but also campaign for public health um, or you know do it working in tv and recipe development and um, for books so the variety is a really good aspect but I also think that working across the different disciplines gives you a lot of context um, to the other areas so I think that sort of insight um, helps to approach each angle kind of of, of the disciplines within nutrition um, a bit differently with a bit more context behind you so um, I, I definitely enjoy the variety I think my heart has always been in the public health and policy side of things. Mm-hmm. So speaking of public health and policy tell our listeners about some of the amazing projects you've worked on since you've been at Jamie's. Yes so they're all really geared towards changing um, the food environment because we know that it kind of heavily influences and shapes um, how we eat so we know that whereas genetics, biology hasn't necessarily changed a lot so over the past however many years, um, our food environment has changed. And that basically means that there's a lot of foods and drinks that are high in fat, sugar, salt that are really um, easily accessible um, to us and also heavily promoted to us all the time. So that's what we've really been trying to um, campaign for, just a, a fairer and healthier food system. Um, so within this, we've done a lot around marketing restrictions and marketing and advertising and that was a campaign called Add Enough um, and that's campaigning for a 9pm watershed across TV because we know that that will really reduce the amount of children that are exposed to foods and drinks high in fat, salt and sugar but also across online as well because um, although it might be argued that, that ads, uh, well children don't see as many ads on TV anymore, we know it's because they've moved online so we need to manage that side of things as well. A successful part of that campaign was being part of the Transport for London's decision to um, ban the high-fat, sugar, salt, food and drink ads across the tubes and the bus network, so all across um, Transport for London. So that was a good outcome. But as far as the online and marketing restrictions go to a 9pm watershed, 
that's um, out on government consultation at the moment, so we're still waiting for feedback for that. So it's on the agenda, but there's been no official outcome, and I suppose the government would be slightly disrupted. It's not Brexit, it's another thing. Exactly. <laughs> and, no, I remember you guys having a really effective photo campaign for that with Jamie and your team and mm. other stakeholders and celebrities getting online and putting... Um, their hands over their eyes to really demonstrate add enough and yeah, yeah the Nutritank team I remember got involved with the photo too and it just yeah. goes to show manpower really leads to progression and hopefully uh, when this madness is over the government will pick up on this incredible worthwhile project. Yeah definitely I think um, that we definitely have the evidence base behind it to show how much advertising influences um, you know, food choices, and we use the word kind of choices um, in inverted commas because we know that we don't necessarily have the freedom of choice for what we're consuming that potentially the food industry or government like to make out that we have because it's heavily, heavily influenced by a whole raft of factors, really, um, that stem from genetics, our food environment, um, behaviours, um, and particularly social economics as well. So there's all, all of that really needs to be taken into account when we're looking at the, the food um, that we eat and also the health of the, the country. Um, another big campaign was Not For Children, and that was around energy drinks. So restricting the sale of energy drinks to under-16s, um, sorry, sorry, banning the sale of energy drinks to under-16s, um, because we, we know the evidence showed that children were consuming these a lot, particularly like on their way um, to school, and so whilst it wasn't saying they could never have an energy drink, it was about them not being able to just go and buy, you know, a young child, buy it whenever they wanted um, without parental consent, um, given that on the actual label of the can, it has to say not not for children, and that's because of the caffeine level. So that was another one. And so onto the sugar tax, could you tell us a little bit more about that? And it would be great to hear a bit about the pushback you got and, um, you know, how do you balance this argument for it? Yeah, so the sugar tax, actually, I was actually on sugar at the time, but we worked very closely with Jamie's team because um, we were all campaigning for it collectively. So the sugar tax um, is really, it's known as the sugar tax, but it's a soft drinks industry levy. So basically, essentially, it's a, a levy, a charge on food manufacturers or drink manufacturers, sorry, that um, produce drinks that contain more than 5% sugar. So if they contain more than 5% sugar, they have to pay a tax. Um, now, that's designed to get them to reformulate their drinks to contain less sugar, which is what we want overall, because if we know that we can, if we can change the amount of sugar in drinks across the board, then that's going to that's gonna impact across the whole population. It's not just going to impact people who um, are a bit more health conscious, let's say, and will go and deliberately make um, you know the choice to have a, a diet Coke or, or Pepsi or whatever it is versus a full sugar one. Um, but in some cases, the manufacturers do pass the cost on, and if they because they haven't reduced the sugar, and that's rare actually. The majority, even when it launched, over fifty percent of the manufacturers had reduced the sugar in their drinks to below the sugar tax amount, which is amazing. So we saw reformulation at an unprecedented rate there. But if they haven't, then they have passed the the cost on to the consumer. Um, that's not how it was designed. However, we know from evidence in other countries that if there is that price differential where a sugary version is more expensive than a diet or um, low sugar version, then it's then that, that does kind of influence choice as well. So it can help to reduce the intake of sugar still. Um, but yeah, what was particularly interesting with the sugar tax was just that we, we just saw the companies really responding 
um, much more quickly because they had to pay a fine, essentially, versus the rate of reformulation we saw before that and also that we're seeing in food. Right. Okay, so it's really proved to be effective. What about um, the kind of pushback you came up against and how, as a public health nutritionist, do you manage that within your job? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the pushback at the time was um, it was being called regressive. You're making, basically, um, implying that you're making drinks more expensive, which wasn't helpful for um, lower-income families. But it was really argued that, in fact, it was more, it's more progressive than regressive because, actually, lower-income families, they're, they're more impacted um, by some of these health outcomes, especially rates of obesity are, are twice um, as high. Um, and also, you know, the main argument against that as well was that the tax really was on designed to be on the manufacturer. Um, so that, that was a main argument. There was an argument around industry job losses, but that was never proved to be um, the case, and it hasn't been, because a lot of the work there was around reformulation um, that was needed. So what we saw was that the sales of these drinks haven't reduced. It's just that the amount of sugar in them has. Sure. So, um, yeah, so that, that was a kind of good from a perspective all around. Win-win, definitely. <laughs> so, Jenny, what would be your top tips for creating a public health campaign that engages people? Well, um, it's a big question. So, well, first of all, you need a strong evidence base. So you need to have the evidence there behind the campaign and the scientific evidence there behind what you're trying to achieve in the first place. Second of all, a coalition of lots of health organisations has really helped. So we're all part of the Obesity Health Alliance. Um, so that has been really helpful in kind of all having the same voice and the same message. And it's been, you know, it's a really consistent ask because it's based on evidence. Um, I also think involving the public is really important because sometimes policy can happen to people, not with people. Um, and getting that consumer voice, if you haven't got the government saying they're going to put legislation in place, like they did for the for the sugar tax, and I should also add that a really positive part of the sugar tax is that all monies raised went back into child health, whether it was school sports or um, breakfast clubs, so that was definitely a, a, a bonus of that. Um, but if you, you know, we really want to kind of bring that kind of consumer voice into it as well to add pressure um, because industry, in the absence of legislation, need to know that you know there's consumer demand. So explaining and articulating kind of the benefits of making these changes to, to consumers and getting the public voice kind of behind as well is really important. And, and that really worked with the sugar tax because there was a petition um, that was started by Jamie's team at the time um, that really kind of made this a debate that had to happen in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Political support is crucial, I can imagine. Yeah. So you talk a lot about consume, the consumer voice, uh, which is a really interesting thing, as I'm sure with a lot of public health measures, sometimes this is factored in and sometimes it's not. So I wanted to kind of get your take on uh, the consumer voice when it comes to food advertising and whether we should take a nanny state perspective like with the smoking ban and do the same for uh, food advertising in public places, healthy or unhealthy. And also to just understand, quite a big question here, to understand a bit more about what your take is on what the government was saying a couple months ago or so about putting um, the amount of exercise you would need to do to burn the calories in a food item off on the food uh, packaging. 
And this kind of ties in quite well with a show I watched uh, a couple nights ago that was on BBC Two Horizons, which was uh, the restaurant that burns calories hosted by Dr. Zoe Williams and featuring a geneticist Giles Yeo, a microbiome expert Tim Spector and Professor of Public Health Susan Jebs. And so I don't know if you caught the show, but there was a lot of uh, contention around it on social media. And so as a public health nutritionist, I just, yeah, wanted to hear your thoughts and wisdom. Okay, I'll try and remember both the questions. <laughs> I, I can remind you. <laughs> so the first one's around advertising and should we take that nanny state um, approach um, in terms of restricted. Yeah, see, I have a real issue with the concept of nanny state because it's more what we're talking about, what we're coming at this from is a perspective of a duty of care. Now, at the moment, the food industry, there are no upper limits to how much sugar, salt, whatever it is that they put in their products. Um, and so you could argue if nanny state means, you know, having control or taking a control, at the moment, the people who have control over really the food on our plates are the food industry. They're the ones who are nannying, as I see it at the moment. Um, so, you know, what, what public health and these campaigns and policy is trying to do is is trying to take back a bit more of that control by, you know, saying you, you can't, we can't have a guideline that suggests X amount of sugar as the maximum recommendation per day, and then one drink alone that people consume on a daily basis contains more than that maximum. Um, it's not really fair. It's just it's not in the spirit of of creating a you know healthy population. So it's trying to regain um, some balance there, I think, with the nanny state argument, um, and then. With the, okay, so the PACE, it's the physical activity exercise equivalent labelling um, on on the food that we eat. I understand the concept because people generally don't have much concept of, or context um, around how much energy is in the food that we consume um, and how it's very easy to over-consume calories. We, we know that, so I think it's um, boys... Um, so children who consume, who are in a weight category of having obesity consume by over 500 calories a day, I think is a stat by Public Health England. So we know that there can be lack of um, concept here and understanding of how much we're consuming versus what we need. Um, and also in, in kind of response or in relation to the amount of exercise um, you know, we're doing and the energy that we would use through being active. So there's a real lack of understanding there. And because of that, we know that we are consuming, over-consuming. Because of lots of the foods that are on the, on the shelves, to be honest, are, are very energy-dense and not very nutrient-dense. Um, so I think there is merit in helping with context with some of these things. However, I think having these kind of labels on products is not helpful because it hugely oversimplifies across the board. There's no space for nuance for a start and explanation, and we'd want to explain to people, you don't need to burn off, I don't like that phrase anyway, but you, know, you don't need to burn off everything that you eat. We, we use up energy by sleeping, by sitting, not as much, obviously, but it's not a case of, you know, we should be running off everything that, that we eat at all. We use energy and calories for lots of things. Um, also, that it's just not a very accurate. It's not a very accurate measure of energy output, um, and it usually oversimplifies calories. So we don't necessarily absorb all the calories from every food that we consume. So there's lots of real reasons why, on a public health practical. 
ethical level, it, it, it's not um, appropriate. And we, we obviously like, want to encourage a, a healthy relationship with food. Now, that's not, I'm not going so extreme to say that, you know, calories feel like a swear word, which some might, you know, some people just really hate that word. And I think we also need to kind of acknowledge that, that there's a lot of kind of education um, that could be done there that people really would value from and would want. But there's no point in doing all of this and telling people about the amount of energy in food um, and then making access to healthy food really, really difficult. So for me, it always then comes back to that kind of policy and making sure that we're creating environments which influence and encourage healthier behaviours versus making it really difficult for us. Brilliant. No, uh, your answers, honestly, wow, you're a wealth of knowledge and it really is important to have balance. And I think you're right. Calories aren't a swear word, but also we don't want to trigger those with eating disorders. And, you know, intuitive eating is also such an important thing uh, to follow. So thank you for that to my monster of a question. So... Moving on, let's talk about the big elephant in the room and why we can't be in person, having a lovely chat and cup of tea. So do you think that COVID-19 will have an impact in the future on how nutritionists and dietitian consultations will be delivered and how is it currently impacting you? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I don't do a lot of that one-to-one kind of face, face-to-face um client-based nutrition um but I imagine like you know how GPs have been managing this and how some of my um friends who are dietitians have been managing with a lot more kind of telephone consultation so you know it's not possible for all um for all cases like you know you need physical examinations but potentially could have an impact I think what I'm seeing and what we've been trying to react to is a lot of the misinformation that's been out out around um well, I think there's a lot of opportunists out there who are trying to flog things like vitamin drips and, you know, vitamin C products and, and lots of different things like that under the guise of that will prevent or help cure COVID and people who get that. And so we've been trying to put out information on Jamie's website. We have a blog um, to, to just give a bit more truth behind that and the fact that vitamins and minerals do play an important role in, in a healthy immune function. But that's built up over time that is certainly not you know a case of the more of these nutrients the better in fact if we have too much of some of them it, it's it's harmful for us um you can't just boost your immune system through you know isolated nutrients our immune system is much more complex than that um and generally we don't need supplements unless you're a particular population group or or for vitamin d during winter months or maybe now when we're inside a bit more um so we've really just been trying to to challenge the misinformation and give some balance to that really that it's more about just eating a, a, a varied and balanced diet um, over time and because that those guidelines are designed to encompass all of the nutrients that, that are healthy for our immune system anyway great and so still with covid and nutrition have you read any interesting research that has highlighted any issues around obesity being somewhat of a risk factor for uh, having a harder time with COVID? Or have you read anything around micronutrient deficiencies making people more prone? Um, could you just tell us a little bit if they're about some of the information that is arising in this area? Yeah, I mean, God, it's a really new, it's a new area. Um, I would definitely say that. 
um, I know the Centre for Disease Control and World Health Organisation, they reported that people with heart disease, so like underlying conditions like heart disease, diabetes, so, um, you know, these kind of diseases that are related to higher levels of adiposity, um, which does increase the risk of some of these diseases, not the only cause, but um, that, that these people are, are at higher risk. So, um, for example, those with body mass index of 40 or higher are at higher risk. Um, can be to do with the uh, body's ability to, to fight lung infections or around some of the treatment options can be more challenging in people with obesity um, in terms of kind of intubation and equipment. Um, however, it's really important that, you know, this isn't about the causes of um, of COVID or mm. contracting it. It's more about the outcomes. Absolutely. And how risk, mm-hmm. Yeah, and how... And, and yeah, how... how how if they get COVID, it can be managed, might be higher, and they might be at an increased risk because of those reasons. So, so I think kind of like the summary around this is: whilst eating like all the nutrients in the world today will not prevent you from getting COVID tomorrow, will prevent you from getting you know like getting over it more quickly. And um, I think what it has done in some ways is shine the light on the fact that we do have a food system that promotes poor health. We have lots of energy dense and nutrient poor foods and overall it might impact our resilience to managing things like this kind of over the long term so anyone that's trying to sell you a vitamin or mineral right now to be a quick fix to to this um is is a fraud (laughs) but but you know could we have lower levels of diabetes and heart disease um lower blood pressure and better immune immune systems um through just having a better food system Cool. So you talk about some of these fraudsters online talking about special supplements and magic things that can help you get better during this time. So social media and Instagram in particular is quite a scary place that isn't the most regulated when it comes to health messages and health products. So I know that you and Jamie's team work so hard to produce incredibly useful incredible messages for the public and I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you think these social media platforms can actually regulate their information better and um, you know the kind of impact it would have on the general public. Well that's such a good question a big question something that frustrates me and I know a lot of kind of my colleagues within health um, a lot um, do you know there has been and this has shone a bit of a light on misinformation and there has been talks about the advertising standards agency you know we should be able to report people who are, who are given misinformation on platforms like Instagram, Twitter especially to Facebook to try and make a sale or through these ads we should be able to report them to the ASA and I don't think that these companies have really caught up yet with social with social media and kind of regulations around that you want to be able to um highlight those who have qualifications in certain areas versus that and, and abide by their code of ethics as well um versus those that don't but yeah i would say ultimately there should be a process where you should be able to flag these um with the asa and they and they should be able to you know take things down and ban ban people from using it because yeah the level of misinformation is is rife um and, and there's a you know there's some information which 
isn't great, um, but or it's a bit inaccurate, but it's not potentially harmful, and then there's the information that's harmful. Um, so yeah, I think I think these kind of regulatory bodies do need to kind of keep up with with the progression of social media because it, it can be a great place, but um, at the moment it's it's not necessarily across the board. I couldn't agree more. I truly believe that influencers have a responsibility to put credible things out there as they don't actually realise the harm that they could cause because it's all in their own echo chambers. They won't see yeah. the effect they have on people. So if a petition yeah. if a petition begins about regulation around health messages and health products, I'll definitely be one of the first to sign that. I'm sure you yeah. will too. Um, definitely. <laughs> something to work on. So on to something a little bit different. I know our listeners would really love to hear about your um, work with the men's training program that you spoke about at the start. So could you just tell us what it entailed and why it's so important to talk about behaviour change and nutrition? Yeah, definitely. So MEND is a multi... uh, So stand for Mind, Exercise, Nutrition, Do It. It's a multidisciplinary, multi-component program. So encompass from you know, the different modules and also the, the people who worked in the team encompass nutrition, um, behaviour change and psychology, and also physical activity. Um, and it was um, an intervention for um, to prevent obesity or to uh, for child weight management, which, by the way, generally is um, helping children to grow into a healthy weight. It's not really, um, unless you've got extreme levels of obesity, it's not really about weight loss as such um, a lot of it for these kind of community programs about growing into weight um, and it was the acknowledgement that you can know everything in the world about nutrition but um, we need the behavior change um, element to be able to put it into practice as well so that is about empowering fam- in the family so um, some of the key behavior change elements were about goal setting it was about parents role modeling um, it was about managing external triggers um which is all around the food environment um it was about increasing taste preferences for certain foods um by food exposure um about creating healthy mealtime habits so, so um lots of things were kind of covered in that program um but i suppose you know it's really helpful to teach families things like that and the ways to like navigate in their home environment not just the external environment but when I moved from men to action on sugar, it was kind of an acknowledgement that we also needed these wider policy changes, um, you know, to empower parents and carers to, to actually kind of be able to make those changes. Thank you. Such fascinating work. And one of the things I loved the most when I was on my paediatrics placement earlier this year is the holistic way that therapy works when it comes to children because you have to involve the entire family because at the end of the day they're not totally autonomous because they have carers who put food on the table who are supporting them financially most of the time so um it's really complicated and multifaceted i guess to have to have the conversation with parents and about empowering them and almost starting with them and changing their habits and then um, yeah. it having the ripple effect and knock on effect on their children. So I just wanted to hear a little bit more from you about any of the challenges you had with empowering parents and how you maybe had to sometimes be careful with language because it's you know so horrible that sometimes uh, the media make it out 
that uh, parents are to blame for um, their children who are overweight when, as I'm sure we'll go on to talk about later, a lot of the time it's it's not a choice. It's because of the food environment and their socioeconomic status. So um, it's a real shame to uh, put blame on them. So tell us a little bit about the kind of conversations you'd have with parents and how you handle it sensitively. Yeah, I mean... It, it's such a good point and it's something that I've really felt so so strongly about um, it's not a choice there's no level playing field um, when we're born as to you know we're, we're just some of us will will you know gain weight more quickly than others purely just simply based on what we choose to eat and it's just not a fact it's um, it's like I've already mentioned we're, we're genetics some of us are predisposed to like different taste preferences or um yeah, or, or just like different levels of kind of hunger, satiety, um, it increases susceptibility to weight gain. Like you said, the, the economics plays, plays a massive role. It's really complex and really huge. Um, what I would say is part of, you know, when we did have the, the weight management sessions, the fact that you had a group where, where all the parents were in the same situation was that they were there looking, you know, around at each other in this room knowing that they were all doing the absolute best that they could and were there because they, you know, were really conscientious parents, they loved their children, they, they wanted to learn more to, to help with the family's health. Um, but yet, the children all still did, you know, have obesity. It was very much like, it wasn't, it was it basically just reflected the point that it's no, it was no one's fault. Like, it was not just happening to one person. Like, the, the majority of adults have overweight or obesity in the UK now and a third of, of children so it's definitely it was always that reminder it's never kind of that individual fault um and so i think that was really good having the the idea was that you would facilitate the group so they could already learn from each other and bounce ideas from each other as well rather than like a teacher standing at the front and just like telling families what to do they have to handle those conversations really really carefully and the other side of that is it's not about avoiding having conversations about child weight either because at the end of the day it, and I mean like with the parents it is the child's health and we know that a lot of parents do not recognise overweight in their children um, less likely to recognise overweight in their children than parents who have children of healthier weight um, so that's important so these discussions do need to be had and however well you know you can deliver those discussions they're not comfortable but they're still important but you know you have to kind of manage yeah, the, the, the approach that we take with them and luckily we work with a brilliant team of clinical and health psychologists who who really kind of structured that whole part of, of the program and so overall um yeah kind of the, the the scary frightening terminology that's used around obesity is not okay we try and talk much more about um health promoting children's health overall um a lot of what you do when you're working with children and uh, you know anyway is um so whether children have obesity or not is improving nutritional intake um, so that's relevant kind of across the board and I know uh, I won't steal any of Nikki Sunder she's doing some great work in the area that I feel really really strongly about which is changing the, the narrative even amongst kind of public health around obesity that we're promoting health in children um, across the board and not just talking you know about making it a weight thing um, all of the time ultimately we want children to have healthier and nutritious foods that's the most important thing Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And what you talk about with the parent groups, the power of peer-to-peer support and those group consultations must be so effective and so helpful to 
see people in a similar position to you and not feel uh, the shame that perhaps sometimes is projected um, by the media and other documentaries and headlines. So um, yeah, definitely. I also wanted to ask you if you managed to watch the Channel 4 show 100 Kilo Kids. Oh, no, I didn't. I need to catch up on my TV viewing overall is what I've learned from this, but no, I haven't. I mean, Jenny, if it's, if it's any consolation, um, you are a working professional, I'm not, so I have had my um, fair amount of time during this COVID period to watch a few docs that have always been on my to-do list as a busy medical student, um, but yeah, I watched it this week, um, I actually watched it because the professor who was leading the programme, Professor Julian Hamilton Shield, uh, one of the UK's leading obese childhood obesity specialists. He's an endocrinologist by trade. Um, he's actually at Bristol. And so I did my placement with him in paediatrics um, at the Bristol Children's Hospital with him and was lucky enough to set in one of his childhood obesity clinics with his multidisciplinary team who all featured in the show. And I really found it so useful to see how those conversations actually um, come into fruition and how challenging it is for the parents, but also for the child who may have social issues at school and it all becomes part of their self-esteem and their personal development. And so I really found it one of, you know, the steepest learning curves um, I've had yet to just really see the impact of a metabolic disease and how it has such an you know such an emphasis and burden on your emotional well-being as well so you know the mental health aspect and stress it causes is is just as profound um and I remember listening to one of the moms on the program who had a five-year-old that was um 60 kilograms or something like that and she felt like she was doing um, a bad job as a mom because everyone would stare at her um, and stare at her child and think that you know it's her fault she's overfeeding her but in the end when she went when this child went for analysis at um, a Cambridge center which um, tests the genetics around obesity it was actually found that um, the child had a mutation on one of her um, genes that really impacted her uh, propensity to feel full and it wasn't her fault. And she literally was going, you know, through, her, through all her five years of life, feeling starving, feeling how we feel after three days of no food and she had no control. And so, it just goes to show that there are so many factors at play and um i would really yeah thing that we the biggest thing that we do wrong is oversimplify obesity and that's the crux of where the stigma occurs so so one of the main things that we need to do to improve like you know the stigma the stigma amongst health professional like you know there's lots of it because of ingrained and embedded messages but one of the key things that we could do is educate on how complex um, the causes are Absolutely agree. And so onto that topic, um, when you discuss the stigma around healthcare professionals, I've actually observed that being a medical student, um, have seen how difficult it is sometimes to bring up weight um, in a consultation in a sensitive and contextual manner. So um, as a nutritionist, how would you say 
you could help educate future generations of doctors and healthcare professionals with bringing up the conversation around weight? So I think that a lot of the conversations, especially say for example, what might be on a, on a one-to-one basis with families, um, is a kind of being aware of the like it takes the the health professional needs to be aware themselves of the complexities and that will help them manage the conversation and um, be kind of you know asking for permission to have those conversations is really important um and yes then always coming from a place of you know not not kind of blaming an individual um but offering support in that kind of kind and compassionate kind of environment. So an environment where they feel safe to have the conversation. You can offer like referring on to certain support um, systems that, that are, um, are available in the local area. Um, but yeah, just certainly making sure that it never comes across as someone else, you know, just individual's fault. Absolutely. And you're so right when you say referring on to local things in the area, which is why I think social prescription is such an incredible uh, scheme and for our listeners who don't know what that is it is when uh, a general practitioner or another clinician connects their patient with a social prescriber link worker who tries to find them activities in their uh, local community which can help them with their chronic conditions so for instance someone who has uh, pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes can be referred to a cooking class and really learn the basics of how to make a well-balanced meal and so things like that and so I want to just lighten the mood a little bit and um, give Jenny's brain a little bit of a break as I have been picking it apart because she is just a fountain of wisdom so uh, Jenny tell me what would be your ideal last supper I want to know what you want for your starter, your main, and your dessert. See, this is really hard for me. <laughs> I don't know if I have like a favourite favourite. I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm gonna go. You know, um, generally. So, right for a starter, I'm gonna go something with fish. There we go. Semi answers. <laughs> and would what kind of cuisine would it be? Are we talking Mediterranean, Asian? What are you thinking? So I like all of those. How are you gonna pick? favorite <laughs> um, but I, I mean, i'd have a different cuisine for each part of the meal that wouldn't be practical would it but still um so yes yeah, so I, I feel like i'll go for more like actual foods i always like something that includes like fish or eggs or cheese cheese is a big one for me um obviously you should eat that with vegetables but <laughs> cheese is always a big one and then for dessert it's always something with custard Less of a big chocolatey thing, but always something with custard. That's like a real nostalgic thing. I think that's why. Very British. <laughs> I know. I know. Very boring. No, I, I like love it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Brings me back to school. Love it. Well, thank you so much. And so I just want to talk to you about um, our most recent conference that we had you speak at. It was an absolute honour to have you there. So it was a brilliant conference. You guys did such a good job <laughs> of putting it all together. Yeah. So for our listeners, it was on March the 7th. Um, can you believe it, Jenny? It was literally the last, one of the last conferences the Royal Society of Medicine could hold before the COVID yeah. chaos you know, came through. We had to do that announcement at the beginning. I remember we weren't we weren't really allowed to hug you and I. Um, 
yeah. you know we had to do all the elbow touching the hand sanitization and everything like that but no one really knew the gravity and then I know how quickly things have changed wow. fr- I know flash forward four days after that and I was told Ali you know get out of your <laughs> get out of your Somerset accommodation um it's yeah. time to wrap up the medical school year <laughs> exactly. so I was on, exactly. I was on placement in uh, Somerset on my um, obstetrics and gynaecology and now I'm back in London so um, yeah the conference was uh, March the 7th it was entitled food nutrition and health we had a fantastic array of speakers which you can hear about in NutriTank's intro podcast and Jenny spoke um, about a lot of the things she's actually spoken with us today but in a shorter period of time and um she showcased to our audience the most profound video and we had such brilliant feedback about it afterwards and I'm going to put it in the show notes after this podcast is wrapped up and it was a video made by the Bite Back organisation and we're lucky enough to have Tasha and Nikki today from Bite Back and so this video was an experiment that they wanted to basically show around the power of food advertising and how it slips into your subconscious and can really impact your decision making when it comes to food. So I'm not going to be the one to tell you about it because enough from me. I'm going to introduce you to the wonderful Bite Back members who are going to introduce themselves and tell you all about the video. So can we welcome Nikki and Tasha? Hi Nikki, hi Tasha. So Nikki, could you just give us a little bit of info around Biteback and how it all began? Sure, yeah. So Biteback is a relatively new organisation. It was um, founded by Jamie um, and a team of others at the beginning of last year. And we exist really because um, all the things Jenny's talked about, ultimately we want uh, a world where every single child has got access to a good diet. Um, whether that's at home, whether that's at school, whether that's on their high street. Why do we want that? Why does this matter? Because it matters for their health. Uh, and we want to improve that for children through access to fresh, healthy, nutritious uh, food. Woohoo! So uh, we want to make sure where you live doesn't on that sadly it does across the UK it's shown that um, kids and families who are living in those more deprived areas are twice as likely uh, to have obesity which of course uh, affects their health so we want to stop that that's not fair it's not right Um, we want to build a new normal if you like we're hearing loads of talk about that you know what's all this going to look like when we come out the other side well what we want is for child health to be a priority um, and that means making sure that no child suffers preventable ill health as a result of the food they eat so there's tons of stuff we want to do it's a really complex issue as I think we've discovered today um, but we kind of want to uh, call on the food industry to do more um, to eradicate this kind of culture of excess that we live in where billions is spent peddling uh, a narrative that says it's okay to overeat, that you should want more, that you should buy more. Um, we want to change public understanding, as Jenny said, and we want to bring that level of understanding in line with the scale of the problem, if you like. So it's a big old task, and we've given ourselves a deadline until 2030 to do it. Dedicated, wow. Absolutely incredible. 
And so, Nikki, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the structure of the organisation and how you have your fantastic youth board, which I'm so passionate about because I really believe that teenage activists, millennial activists really have such a loud voice when it comes to health. And um, you'll see on this podcast, we're really about challenging the bad reputation that millennials and young people sometimes get um, in the 21st century. So could you just tell us a little bit about how you set up the structure of the organisation? Yeah, sure. Well, I can tell you that within the walls of Bikeback, um, millennials and young people have a pretty good reputation. Um, That's what we like to hear. Led by an awesome group. We call them our youth board. Um, Tasha's with us today. Um, uh, they are an incredible group of passionate young activists who uh, drive everything that we do at Bikeback. We don't do anything without having their involvement. And that was really important to us at the point of setting up because we know that in order to fix this really complex problem we've got to listen to the people it's affecting most we don't want to do anything to we want to work with young people to solve this problem and what we found is that when and i'm sure tasha will agree that with this when you give young people the information they need um they they become outraged at some of the deliberate tactics that are being used to influence what they eat in a way that will damage their health and so then you start to see that fire of activism that has spread through other issues like climate change um that spotlight if you like coming onto the food system and we really really wanted uh this to be an authentically youth-led organization i'm really proud to say that it is absolutely and like you mentioned with climate change um, with Greta, you know, it's so important we replicate that in the food and public health sphere. So um, I really applaud that work and I really applaud the bottom-up approach you've taken um, because as a young person, I think it's really, really crucial that we start moving towards non-hierarchical structures and so everyone has a say and can work collaboratively and I think we'll see huge progression with that type of work. So uh, really passionate about Bite Back and so grateful to have you guys on. Um, Come and work for us, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I can balance being a doctor, co-founder of Nutritank Tank and Bite Back, that would be the most amazing thing. Um, if you can find me a PA, then I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> Um, but thank you so much, Nikki. Uh, really, really great to hear all of that. Um, could you tell us, before we talk to your wonderful um, youth board member, Tasha, could you tell us a bit about um, the celebrities and other stakeholders you've got involved? Because I'm sure our listeners will want to know. Yeah, we, we've of course got Jamie, as I, as I mentioned. He was, he was one of our founders um, and is a big supporter uh, of everything we do at Bite Back. Um, but we've got a host of other names. We are so lucky to have um, many famous faces supporting our work. Uh, David Gandhi um, is among them. Uh, we've got a host of celebrity chefs, including um, Thomasina Myers, um, Melissa Hemsley, uh, Ella from Ella's Kitchen, you name it, they all back us. Chris Baber, the lovely, um, you might have seen him on your tellies recently as the face of M&S Food, but he's also Blue Peter's chef. Uh, he's a big supporter of the work we do. Um, uh, and I'm delighted that we're talking to Dr. Ranj at the moment. I'd love to get him involved. That would be um, that would be the icing on the cake. But yeah, we're really, really lucky to have that support. And we need it 
because when you began by asking Jenny what makes a successful campaign, I mean, one of the biggest struggles you face is having that platform uh, mm-hmm. to get your message out. Um, and those ambassadors are really, really crucial to that. Yes, I can imagine. I think the more manpower, the better. And it's really good that social media allows you to be disruptive and there's not really an end point to how many times you can share your message, is there? <laughs> Which is really, I'm really good. I'm that I've forgotten some of our biggest names and we'll be in trouble. Like, oh, Dr. Alex George, of course, the great Dr. Alex George, who's doing incredible stuff at the moment through this crisis. He is also a big champion of what we do. Yes, Dr. Alex George from Love Island. We'd love to get him on the pod, actually. <laughs> so if you share this with him, tell him we're after him. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Thanks, Nikki. So without further ado, let's take it away and introduce Tasha, who's from Lewisham and is an asylum seeker from Zimbabwe. She is absolutely passionate about making healthy food accessible to all and changing the way we talk and approach the topic of obesity. So, Tasha, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We absolutely love what you guys do. We're always messaging you on Instagram and tagging you and things because we really believe that we can join forces as young organisations that are after the same thing with public health. Yeah, definitely. I think me and you could do a lot together. Both our organisations are destined for greatness. Love it. A bit of a duo act. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, Tasha, tell the listeners how you first got into it. So, throughout uh, secondary school and college, I debated with an organisation called Fight Back. Um, Essentially, they are a non-profit organisation that works to improve social mobility for children and they do this through after school debate programs and so one of my mentors told me that Jamie was looking for a group of passionate young people who would join who will form um the youth board as part of his new campaign and of course I applied and I'm so grateful that my application was successful because ever since I've been working with so many incredible people who have this incredible goal goal to have childhood obesity by 2030 so I'm so so excited That's just so incredible and brilliant of Jamie to offer that opportunity. I know he's been such a strong support and mentor for us and I think it will really just be a wonderful trajectory for you to have going forward, being part of this organisation. So um, tell us about the other people on the youth board and um, how you've all worked together. So we have 12 of us, I believe. of young people all across the country from all different backgrounds who have interests not just in the food industry but also with climate change and other topics that are very important to young people and together we formed a youth group and we come together and discuss different areas within the industry that we'd like to address whether that's the marketing and advertising industry or we're looking at food labels and really looking at how can we engage young people and get them on board and behind this and really show these adults that this is a problem that affects us and we are interested and invested into making a change and really protecting our future. Absolutely and you can really do something about it you have a voice and you have a mission and you know an incredible platform so there are lots of perks and reasons why this needs to happen but tell us about some of the challenges and you know, some of the struggles that young people of our generation face when it comes to food and nutrition? Yeah, so there are so many uh, 
companies. For example, junk food advertising is also a huge problem for us. Um, millions of pounds are spent convincing impressionable children and young people that they want a range of products, including food and drinks, that often have a devastating effect on our health. And like you mentioned earlier, real choice is taken away from us when you're ordering yourself, I don't know, let's say a Big Mac and fries. It's very likely that your choice was made for you when you saw an advert on the telly, on a billboard near your house, or you saw it on your Instagram Instagram feed. And so you think that you're ordering this because you want it, but actually it's a message that was sent for you already. Um, we're also looking at how healthy food is far too expensive for a young person. Um, especially if you're from a low-income household, you find price promotions for sweets, chocolates, crisps, biscuits, fizzy drinks, all these unhealthy foods, foods that are high in sugar, salt and fat and are not healthy for you, whereas your fruits and vegetables are incredibly um, priced higher, which makes it more economical for a young person to buy cheaper alternatives, which of course are likely to be unhealthy for you. Also talking about um, misleading labels, um, research shows that health claims on like food and drinks, these make people believe that a product is healthier than the same product without such statements. And of course, that affects your consumer choices and it makes it harder for consumers to make healthy dis- healthy options without having, you know, a really good look at the ingredients list. So when food say, you know, oh, it's fat-free and um, it appears healthy, however, sometimes what we don't know is that this you know, this fat or this sugar has been substituted for some for an alternative that may be a lot more damaging to your health than, you know, the original sugary version. Sure. Wow, Tasha, so much to unpack there, such rich information. Um, so you started talking about the premise of the video when you were talking about there really isn't sometimes real choice when it comes to uh, the food advertising that's just apparent everywhere. So please take the opportunity now to tell our listeners about the video that you all helped create and the experiment. Yeah, so the experiment was following a group of young people who were told that they were going to be taking part of uh, an experiment. And essentially, we didn't tell them, of course, the real experiment that was happening. So we organised for them to meet at a restaurant and on their way um, to the place, we made sure that there were specific um, adverts that were encouraging this triple fried chicken. Um, and so when they were in the Uber, there was a advert for that. There was a billboard that one of the guys walked past for that as well, advertising that particular food. And so when they got to the restaurant and they ordered this, they thought um, that they wanted it, but little did they know that we had strategically placed these different adverts for them and that choice was made for them already and the shock on their faces that they have been deceived and manipulated um, just shows how a lot of us are unaware of the strategies that the food industry uses um, to make young people more prone to to have unhealthy food. The sheer power of advertising, it's so scary isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Wow. And so back to what you were talking about with food labelling, um, it's something I also feel quite passionate about and believe that more people need to have an education around it. And I know that medical students struggle as well with uh, making healthier choices because we're not taught around nutrition and um 
you know, how to actually advise patients and make it practical in terms of food shopping and ingredients and recipes. Uh, we're really just taught around the biochemistry, the physiology and the anatomy of the digestive yeah. system. You know, all the boring stuff, Tasha. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Not the useful stuff. And so I was lucky enough to do a module two summers ago, which I helped pilot at Bristol Medical School with Dr. Rupi Orgula, um, who's better known as Doctor's Kitchen, and uh, Professor Trevor Thompson, who's our head of primary care at Bristol and we helped pilot culinary medicine which is an organization we work very closely with and it was a fantastic course and opportunity where medical students were actually um, taught by dietitians, GPs and chefs around different issues with food and uh, nutritional messages and one of the things we were taught was around food labeling and I was absolutely gobsmacked at some of the um, strategies that food industry are still able to use to get um, health promotion messages that aren't actually legit onto their products and I was wondering if you felt uh, the same way and the same frustration I kind of feel with the um, you know health promotion messages that are on some of the products but aren't necessarily true. Yes definitely especially when it comes to nutrition labels on children's products. So obviously, nutrition labels, they say how many calories and nutrients are you know, in a standard amount of the product. And so anything like the traffic labels, they give you informa- give consumers information on the energy amount, fat, sugar, salt content, etc. And if you're using the traffic uh, light label, if the majority of the diagram is green, it means that the product is likely to be healthy for you. However, all this information is based on adult consumption, which is what most people don't know. So whilst the traffic light label is green on a pepper Pig yogurt or your favorite Disney character cereal box, for child consumption, it should all be red because the sugar, salt and fat content is likely to be far too high for a child's daily intake. And so my problem is that Food that is advertised for children and for young people should have nutritional information based on their age and not what we see now where reference intake for an adult is used on children's products. You're absolutely right and I think they need to listen to you, Tasha. I think you can really, (laughs) you can definitely change their minds. Um, Powerful voice right there. Um, So could you tell me what you think some of the tools, um, what some of the tools are that we need to equip our young people with in order to create a more sustainable and healthy food future for us all. Yeah, as, as cliche as it sounds, honestly, education is the tool. Um, equipment, we need to equip young people with the knowledge on how to navigate the food industry and not be victim to some of the sneaky tactics that it uses and it operates under. And so at school, instead of being, not instead of, but alongside being taught, you know, biology and the body's anatomy etc we should be teaching children how to read and understand these food labels the serving sizes and all the other jargon that is used on food packages uh, we should make young people aware of, the, of these strategies absolutely um, for example i don't know if you know but supermarkets trick you by placing some healthy food at the front of the store so that once you've gone through you know through the entire store and you buy the junk food later, you feel less guilty for it. I didn't know that, you know? So it's about making people aware of how the system operates and so you're able to actually act against it and be a more um, aware uh, consumer. 
Who do you think holds the responsibility for the health and nutrition of young people in society? Um, I think for me, there's a shared responsibility um, for the health of young people, and it's not just one particular stakeholder. Um, so, for example, I think there's a level of accountability for government. Uh, they have a role to play as well. That could be implementing a 9pm watershed across all types of junk food, which would reduce you know, children's exposure to these kind of unhealthy foods and create a healthier environment which the schools can support um i think it's like jenny mentioned earlier you know the sugar tax that was great um we've seen how that's actually impacted and that's actually impacted young people and having a positive um effect on on our society also businesses have a role to play as well this could be increasing the advertising revenue for healthy foods millions like i mentioned is spent on unhealthy food now imagine the impact that we could have if this money was spent towards the healthier foods you know providing affordable options for low-income families even having price promotions for your fruit and veg instead of your chocolates and your fizzy drinks etc so I think there's a lot that governments can do and businesses can do as well in order to create a, a society that promotes healthy living and a healthy lifestyle. I couldn't agree with you more and I think they should put you in charge, to be honest. I think so as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd vote for you. Um, so how does Bite Back 2030 hope to change the current landscape of food and nutrition for young people? What are you guys going to do to actually achieve this? So our overall target is to have childhood obesity by 2030 and we hope to do this using um, a multifaceted strategy that addresses different issues within the food system. Um, so since we launched last October, we've run different campaigns addressing different issues. For example, we had an advertising campaign, which is very successful. We had companies like Unilever, um, who's the owner of Ben & Jerry, who vowed, Ben & Jerry's who vowed, who vowed to stop advertising um, ice cream for children. We've also ran a labeling campaign that's called for traffic light labels to be made compulsory on food packaging. And this also has been really successful. Um, a few companies have reached out to Bite Back and are working with the youth boards discussing ways that they can change their labels so that they're more useful to us and tackle um, obesity. So alongside that, we're also working with different organizations and policy makers who are all working together to reach this final goal and create a a future that is about for young people um, where we believe every single child has access to you know healthy food and healthy living wow sounds like a plan i think you guys might really be onto something and i hope that we'll be having the conversation in 2030 about all your successful work so the same here <laughs> really great job and so I wanted to ask you, how can Nutritank help to um, share your message? Do you have any resources? How can we get our members and audience involved? How do people in general get involved in Bite Back? So that's fantastic. So our website, which is uh, www.biteback2030. Um, and so on there, you can see the stuff that we're working on, our campaigns, there's also loads of information on there about the food industry. Uh, we've also today opened applications for our youth leadership program. And so we're looking for young people between the age of 15 and 18 who want to create a real change within the food system. So head on over to the website and you can make your applications there as well. 
again on our social media at fightback2030 that's on instagram and facebook we run a lot of our campaigns on there as well we're asking our followers to tag their local mps or to tag their favorite influencers and see how they can get on board as well and really support um, the organization brilliant and so how can food companies get involved if they want to make a change to how they operate reach out to the likes of nikki and the rest of the um fight back team as well and yeah just send an email as simple as simple as an email just sending telling us you know what you'd like us to do or if it's you want to have a conversation with us and what young people are looking for it's just a simple email brilliant and i think that's a really good question ali you know that nobody's the enemy here everybody is part of the solution so we would really encourage and welcome uh food industry uh bodies and and organizations to to come and and, uh, and join this movement to put child health first absolutely we're all friends here and so now to finish on a bit of fun tash i want to know what your last supper ideal meal would be starter main and dessert and I don't think it's going to be the triple fried chicken, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> and I thought about this one. I really thought hard and long about this question. Okay, so my starter, it would be a sticky honey glazed prawns. Okay, I love prawns. Love them. So that would be my starter. Um, and then my main would be something with salmon. I love salmon. So like garlic and lemon baked salmon. I love sweet potato as well. So put that on the side. And then for my dessert, Oreo waffle with like ice cream. I love Oreos. So why not? And yeah, I think that would be my last supper. Wow. What a feast. That sounds absolutely delicious. I definitely hear a rumble um, (laughs) in my tummy. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Tash. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and I think we're such a good double act, Tash, and I really hope that when this is all over with COVID that the Bite Back Youth Board team and Nutritank team can all have a little party at Jamie's HQ. So, Definitely. Jenny, if you could try and, you know, put a good word in for us. I'm on it, I'm on it. <laughs> have a nice pasta party. <laughs> Why not? Well, thank you all. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've learned so much and I hope our listeners have too. And that's all for now. Hope to have you on soon again. Thanks, Ali. Bye. Thank you. To find out more about the lovely Jenny, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram with the handle HelloHealthyYou. Nutritank are proud to have featured on many of the UK's leading networks and publications, Jamie Oliver's website and his Channel 4 show, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast, BBC News, BBC Radio 4, on Sheila Dillon's The Food Programme, Women's Health, BBC Bristol, and the Royal Society of Medicine. Nutritank is an innovative information hub of food, nutrition, and lifestyle medicine, promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within healthcare training and empowering members of the public to improve their health. Join the movement to bring greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education nationwide. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you want to find more about Nutritank, visit the website, Nutritank.com. Also, find us on Twitter, Nutritank underscore info, and Instagram, Nutritank underscore official. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. 
It will really help with our mission at Nutritank to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Bye for now.